friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. Verses 21 to 22. We're still continuing, of course, with the Sermon on the Mount. We started with chapter 5. We're going to complete this all the way to chapter 7. So here's the text for today. At the count of three, please. One, two, read. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Let's bow our heads in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks and praise for this wonderful morning. Thank you, O God, that we could worship you. Indeed, Lord, only you deserve the highest praise. Only you are the immutable being in the entire universe. Only you do not change. Only you are holy. Only you are pure. Only you are with spot and without blemish and without stain. And we rejoice, Lord, in your person. Indeed, Lord, you deserve the highest praise. And today, once again, we humble ourselves before you. And you know, Lord, that we will forever be mendicants before you. We will forever be beggars before you. And so we ask for grace once again, though we know that we do not deserve it. We thank the Lord Jesus Christ for providing atoning grace, the cleansing and washing of our sins, so that we might enter boldly into your very presence with confidence and no fear at all. We thank you, O God, for the freedom that you've given us, O God. And we pray, Lord, that that freedom might be displayed this morning as we are empowered by your Holy Spirit. Empower me as well, Lord, to speak your words, that your people might be illumined with your word. We pray, O God, that you might strengthen us and you might cause us to confess whatever sins we have committed against you to your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I think there is no other title that gets better than the title anger equals murder because this is actually what we find in the text that we will be studying today. Now, we human beings have categorized sins into what we consider as the greater sins and then those that we consider as the lesser sins. However, when it comes to God's perspective, we need to understand that this is not true. We often think that God is greatly displeased with uh, great sins, and therefore it incurs His wrath. But when it comes to the lesser sins, we think that they are permissible to God and that those sins are easily condoned by the Lord. We think that God condescends down to our level. And he understands our failures, he understands our struggles, he understands our weaknesses, and he just easily condones that. Now, i just like to be able to say that that perception is dangerously wrong. Absolutely no sin, listen well, absolutely no sin is permissible in the sight of God, whether you're thinking about great sins or big sins or small sins, God cannot and will never ever be able to tolerate sin. The smallest sin and the slightest disobedience, listen well, is deserving of hell. Can I say that once again? The smallest sin and the slightest disobedience is actually deserving of hell. And I think we need to plant that in our minds and in our hearts because 
unless we view it that way, we will continue to dishonor God. We will continue to disrespect God. We have to have a high view of the holiness of God. We have to have a high view of the purity of God. All sin, my dear brothers and sisters, is abhorrent to God, no matter how small we might think it to be. The standard of God is so high, let me just say this, it is humanly unattainable. And this is something that the rich young ruler discovered for himself when he asked the Lord Jesus Christ what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. The Lord just cross-examined him, and at the end of the day, what did he discover? He discovered that he failed God big time and that he could not really surrender himself to the Lord fully because he was a lover of money. And so when Jesus was alone with his disciples, he said this because even the disciples were confounded as to how a person could be saved. And so Jesus gives a very simple answer, which unfortunately a lot of people miss. Jesus said, with men... These things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Therein, Jesus already stated definitively that we can never, ever achieve salvation on our own, by our own good works. God himself, Jesus himself said, it is humanly impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Therein lies the solution as well. If you and I are going to be saved, only God is our hope. Therefore, salvation does not emanate from man. It is always monergistic. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, just to give you a verse of Scripture that makes us understand how difficult or how humanly unattainable salvation is, I'd like you to have a look at 1 John. (coughs) Sorry. Chapter 3 and verse 15. And here's what it says. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, very clearly, we can break this down into two parts, and I'd like to be able to dwell on this just a little bit. It says here, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now again, from our own human perspective, we cannot understand that. How can somebody who simply hates a brother be a murderer? Because after all, we're thinking, well, it's just a sin of the heart. I'm not really hurting or harming anybody at all. If I hate somebody, it's something that I just have on my inside, in my heart. And so how can that possibly be murder? Again, when we think in those terms, we're thinking in human terms. And again, we cannot challenge God himself because he is the potter and we are the clay. He is the one who determines moral and spiritual values. We do not determine it. Human beings are actually incapable of determining moral and spiritual values. Why? Because we're selfish. Why? Because we have a sinful nature. Why? Because we will always justify ourselves. So we need to leave these things to God. If God says, this is sin, then this is sin. No arguments with God. No debates with God. And so if God says, That if you hate your brother, you are a murderer, then it should be a period and an exclamation mark on our part. No question marks. That's what God says, and we just have to believe that and accept that as well. And then he goes on and he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now remember, once again, he equates anger with murder. And so what this is saying is if you are looking for an evidence of your salvation, then hatred must not be dwelling in your heart. Because if hatred or bitterness or grudges dwell in your heart, again, this is not for me. This is the Word of God. It says you have no eternal life. 
In other words, you're not saved. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Mel, but I pray the sinner's prayer. When, when the pastor called for people to come in front to receive Christ, I came running all the way to the front. And I knelt down and I prayed the sinner's prayer. How can it be that, that I am not saved just because I have hatred in my heart? Just because I have bitterness in my heart? Does that mean I'm not saved? Again, no arguments. This is the Word of God. And the Word of God says, if we have a settled disposition of anger and bitterness, we do not have eternal life. Now, having said that, I think it's very important to take stock of ourselves because, again, we always measure ourselves according to our own standards. Or we measure ourselves, you know, comparing ourselves with other people. And so when we think that we're above them, we're, we're all right, we're fine. But then again, God goes much, much deeper when He actually evaluates us. And once again, in effect, what John the Beloved is saying here in this letter and what Jesus Christ Himself is saying in the passage that we are studying is that anger equals murder. Anger equals murder. This is why we need the gospel. Because the truth of the matter is, there are two passions that are so difficult for us to overcome. One passion that is difficult for us to overcome is the passion of lust. And the other passion that is difficult for us to overcome is anger. These are two passions, however, that we need to be able to bridle or to put under control. And you and I know that if we do not allow or if we do not control these passions, many evil things can happen. When it comes to lust, it can, it can turn out into fornication. It can turn, turn out into adultery. And then when you talk about anger, later on it can turn out to be murder. And that is why we need to nip it in the bud. It is something that needs to be removed from our lives and that is why, once again, we need the gospel. Apart from the gospel, we have no hope of redemption. And we have no hope of a genuinely changed life. So if you want deliverance from lust, if you want deliverance from anger, what do you need? You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just share to you a little story, maybe a little testimony that will make us understand what I mean. I grew up in a, in a dysfunctional family. As far as I could remember, when I was young, my mother and father were always quarreling. They were quarreling about a lot of things. Most especially, they were quarreling about money. And it had greatly affected us brothers. We were only three brothers. We did not have a sister. Uh, we were all boys in our family. It affected us so much that we also quarreled with each other. We actually fought with each other, fist fights and all. I recall my brother cutting the eyelashes of my youngest brother using scissors. And my, my brother, you know, used his belt to, to hammer me in the head. And that's why right now I still have this slight scar at my back. It's not noticeable in the camera, however. Anyway, you know, that was the kind of family we had. And, you know, we, we hardly talked with each other. It was so awkward to even be able to say, I love you. In fact, I, I do not recall my father saying, I love you to me, nor to my brothers. And I do not recall us saying, I love you to each other. And I know, we, I know that we loved each other in spite of our fights and our quarrels, but we were such a dysfunctional family that vindictiveness and anger was something that was so natural and so spontaneous to us. And so what was the hope? I recall my brother when my father finally left home. My brother at that time had his high school teacher give him a Bible. And I think that started him off on a journey of seeking God. And I think somewhere along the line, he finally came to Christ, joined a, a campus ministry, and he started to pray. 
And his prayer was, Lord, bring back the family together. Bring back my father home. And to make a long story short, God in his goodness and his mercy answered that prayer. And so my father went back home. And we all came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We all gave our lives to Christ. My father and my mother were reconciled. My brothers and I were reconciled. Now my brother to me, my younger brother Jess, is such a dear brother. It's still awkward for me to say I love you to him, but I force myself and say I love you. And uh, it's still awkward for me to embrace him, but, you know, I, I do embrace him. And so things have changed. And what changed? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are some of us here who are struggling, having great difficulty with these passions, the passion of lust and the passion of anger. And I'm here to tell you, you have hope. And that hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can change. And I pray that at the end of this sermon, those of you who are struggling with these passions, maybe you've prayed the sinner's prayer, but it's still there. You're still a bitter person. You're still an angry person. You're still a lustful person. I pray at the end of this sermon, you might give your life to Christ, that you might be set free and be delivered from these passions that do not at all glorify God. We need to realize that we are dealing with an absolutely holy and perfect God who does not have any speck of evil whatsoever in his being. This sets up a majestic distance between you and God. God is so distant from us in terms of holiness. That is why he is called holy. Holy, by the way, doesn't just speak of absolute purity. It speaks of the transcendence of God. He is so high over above us. That's why his, his mind is unfathomable. His love cannot be measured. We cannot measure the width, the height, the length, and the depth of the love of God. God is simply immeasurable. He is infinite. He is eternal. And therefore, we need to submit to His wisdom, and we need to submit to His love. Now, what we need in our lives is grace. Grace for our salvation and grace to empower us to live a righteous life. In today's sermon, we will see a disparity between the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you will see how far the Pharisees and, and the, the scribes have gone off in the interpretation of the Old Testament. And so we're going to talk about two things uh, this morning. So have a look, please, on the screen. So these are two things we're going to talk about. Verse 21, first of all, we're going to talk about the inadequate teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, there were some good things in their teachings, but many things that were lacking, many things that were wrong, in fact. So in verse 22, Jesus corrects that. And he gives the full meaning on teaching about anger. And so once again, once again, this is what you and I will be talking about. But before we dive into our text, let's ask ourselves the question, what was the goal of Jesus' teaching? What was his goal? What was the motive? Well, Jesus sought to bring back the original meaning and significance and intent of the Old Testament. And how he did that was by presenting six illustrations, six illustrations coming from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to verse 48, the same chapter. Now, in the typical Pharisaic interpretation, conformity to the law was only an external matter. Remember, we were talking about the fact that as far as the Pharisees and scribes were concerned, they forgot about heart obedience, which is really the most important thing. The heart is the most important thing to God. That is why the book of Proverbs says we need to guard our hearts because it is the wellspring of life. Now, when Jesus Christ talks about spirituality, 
he's talking about having the right heart and the right motive because we can actually do the right thing with the wrong heart. Jesus shows to us that conformity to the law was not merely mechanical. And in our country, this is actually what we see. There's so much mechanical uh, ceremonies that we find, and yet the heart is not involved. The body is moving. The, mud, the body is doing reverential things, so to speak, but the heart is not there. Now, spirituality involves the whole man, motives and all. That is why, in comparison to the Pharisees' teaching, Jesus' teaching actually uh, was demanding so much more. It was far more reaching. Now, it seems radical, but actually it was consistent with the Old Testament. So who was it that actually misinterpreted the Old Testament? It was the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus had a correct understanding of the Old Testament. I'd like to show that to you just by showing uh, two passages. Could you please turn, first of all, to Isaiah 29 and verse 13, please. Here we go. It's, here's what it says. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their what? With their words and honor me with their what? Their lip service. But they remove their what? Their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Once again, here we find how the Lord evaluates people and he can see beyond the veneer. He can see beyond the facade. He can see beyond the external. And he actually knows if you are truly, genuinely worshiping God. He knows if your heart is in it. He knows if you are engaged with him or you are disengaged with him. As I mentioned to you, you can be in this place you can be listening to the same sermon, listening to the same songs, but it's always possible that your heart is not really engaged. Your mind is somewhere else, your heart is somewhere else, and you are not having an encounter with God. And that is such a misfortune, that is such a tragedy, if you are not able to encounter God here in the community of believers, because that's the reason why we gather together. We gather together so that you and I could have a real, genuine encounter with God. If you don't have an encounter with God while you are here, well, you've just wasted your time. Maybe you should have just stayed home because, again, the motive here, the intention, is for our hearts to be engaged with Him. Now, have a look at Amos chapter 5, verse 21, and, and here's the reaction of the Lord Jesus Christ in relation to all the festivals and all the ceremonies and rituals that the Jews were doing at that time. So I, Amos chapter 5, verse 21, please. It goes, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. So once again, God looks deeper. That's why once again, as we come here before the presence of the Lord, we need to be mindful, Lord, am I pleasing to you? As I raise my hands, Lord, is it pleasing to you? As I, I sing songs to you, Lord, is it pleasing to you? As I sit down here listening to your sermon, is my heart engaged, Lord? Am I truly listening to the voice of your Holy Spirit? 
These are questions we need to ask ourselves. And unfortunately, the Pharisees were unable to really go into the deepest recesses of God's heart. That's why we find here in verse 21, the inadequate teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. So once again, let's read verse 21, please. It says, You have heard the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, who were the ancients here? Who was the Lord Jesus Christ referring to? Obviously, he was referring to Moses and the Israelites of that particular time. They were the ancients, the people of the Old Testament, particularly Moses, because he was the one who authored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And here we find him quoting, you shall not murder, which is lifted from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Now, here's a little uh, clarification. You will notice it does not say, you shall not kill. But rather what it says is, you shall not murder. Why? Because there's actually a distinction between killing, which at times may be permissible to God, and murder. Murder definitely is something that is prohibited or forbidden by God. Now, why do I say that killing is allowed? Well, it's allowed or permitted in some cases. For example, capital punishment. Now, uh, we find some examples in the Bible of capital punishment. For example, if you commit adultery, what was the punishment for that in the Old Testament? Death through what? Stoning. If you murdered somebody, what was the capital punishment or what was the punishment for it? Once again, stoning or death through stoning. And what if you cursed your mother and father at that time in the Old Testament? What was the penalty for cursing your mother and your father? It was stoning once again. It was death through stoning. And that's why many of the young people here, you have to thank God you're in the New Testament. Because if you were in the Old Testament, many of you would be stoned to death. So yes, capital punishment is allowed. It is permitted by God as penalty for heinous crimes. And then there is what we call as a just warfare. Now some people complain, why is it that God was so cruel he practically exterminated people in the Middle East, the Canaanites. How could God just do that, exterminate an entire population? We forget that God was patient for more than 400 years. He was extremely patient. He was giving these nations time to repent, time to seek the face of God, but they grew from bad to worse. Finally, the patience of God had run out. And so he raises up a nation, and that nation, of course, is the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel chastises or chastised these other nations. That is why they were driven out. The Bible says that they were removed from the land because of their abominations. Of course, another way wherein killing might be allowed is accidental homicide wherein there is no intention of murder, but it happens. Or no, no intention of killing, but it happens. Now again, that is permissible and it is not penalized. Then another way by which killing might be allowed is in self-defense. So again, these are areas wherein God permits killing, but definitely He will not allow murder. Now Jesus says, that if you commit murder, you are liable to the court. Now, actually, Jesus was summarizing Numbers 35, verses 30 to 31. I'd like you to have a look at Numbers 35, 30 to 31. It says here, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Herein we find the wisdom of God. 
Verse 31, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So here we find that there is a penalty to murder and the penalty, of course, after proper investigation is death, at death itself. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's how it goes. So, as far as the Pharisees and scribes were concerned, they were only looking at the external meaning of this particular passage. But Jesus gives a fuller meaning in verse 22. So let's have a look at the full meaning of Jesus' teaching on anger in verse 22. Here it goes. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, a lot of people have been confused with the word but here because it seems like Jesus was contradicting the Old Testament because clearly, you shall not murder is a commandment that is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus specifically. So was Jesus actually contradicting the Old Testament? Was he contradicting Moses? The answer is no. Some Bible scholars feel that it is best translated, instead of using the word but, it is best translated with using the word and. Now this is coming from some very good biblical scholars, and they say, the but here should actually be replaced with the word end. Now, if you replace it with the word end, then there is no contradiction actually here. Now, the point here is that Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament. Understand this. He was not criticizing the Old Testament. What, therefore, was he criticizing? He was criticizing the interpretation of the Pharisees and the scribes. That was what he was criticizing. For the Pharisees, murder was just a mere criminal act. And the Pharisees were saying that for as long as I don't kill, I'm fine, I'm all right. I've not murdered anybody. I've not killed anybody. I just hate somebody. I'm just bitter about somebody. So that's fine. I'm all right. Now Jesus is saying you're dead wrong. You are not all right if you have anger in your heart. God looks so much deeper. He looks deeper into the heart. And he is saying to us that anger needs to be judged. Now I know for a fact that we all do have some anger issues. Some not so big. Some probably it's, it's a bondage already and you actually need deliverance. However, brothers and sisters, it's very important to know that God wants to remove this thing in our hearts. The law said no murder. Jesus interprets it to mean no anger. Let me say it once again. The law was saying no murder. Jesus interpreted it to say no anger. And by the way, Jesus was giving the correct interpretation of the Old Testament. Why? Because in the Old Testament, it was already there. Have a look at the book of Leviticus, please. Book of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. Notice what it says in the Old Testament. You shall not, what? You shall not hate your fellow countrymen where? In your heart. So it's already there in the Old Testament. You may surely reprove your brother or neighbor, but, not, but you shall not incur the sin because of him. Look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the Pharisees and scribes were saying, well, it's not wrong to hate your brother. It's not wrong to hate your fellow Israelite. They were definitely wrong. They were selective in their obedience. 
Because hatred, as defined in the Old Testament, was already considered a sin by God. And that is why, again, this was something that the Israelites, the Pharisees and scribes had missed. God was saying, you cannot hate your fellow men in your heart. You cannot bear a grudge. You shall not take your vengeance. And then it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, Jesus Christ said, love your what? Love your enemies. And in this particular case, a fellow Israelite, a neighbor, happened to be the enemy. And so in truth, what the book of Leviticus is saying, even in the Old Testament, it is saying, love your enemy. All right, could you say to your neighbor right now, love your enemy? All right. Now it's getting to be more and more difficult, more and more impossible. Amen? I mean, loving my neighbor is difficult in itself. Now you're telling me love your enemy. But that's exactly what the book of Leviticus is saying. And so once again, what does this tell you? The righteousness of God is humanly unattainable. That is why, as I mentioned to you, The righteousness of God is summarized in verse 48. You shall be holy as, or you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is what the righteousness of God demands. The perfection of God, the holiness of God, and most definitely, you and I do not have the perfection of the Heavenly Father. You and I do not have the holiness of the Heavenly Father. So what is our hope? Our only hope is Jesus Christ. Our only hope is the gospel. Our only hope is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and purifies us when you and I are convicted by God of our sins. And that is why, again, it is very important to surrender my entire life to Christ. And if you've done that, understand this, there is still that aspect of sanctification which requires a daily yielding and a daily surrender to God. Surrendering to God is not just one time. Now, you may say to yourself, I've already prayed the sinner's prayers. I have genuinely accepted Christ. Fine. But understand this. The Bible says you still need to walk in the Spirit and not satisfy the desires of your flesh. The Bible still says that you need to be led by the Spirit and you need to pray in the Spirit. What was the prayer of Paul for those who were already believers in Ephesus? His prayer that they might be strengthened in the inner man. So it never stops for us. Our growth towards spiritual maturity should never, ever stop. Because the moment it stops, remember this, you've already backslidden. Your heart is no longer with God. So in a sense, what do we see here? There was nothing new in the teaching of Jesus Christ. If there was something that was probably novel, it was when Jesus equated anger with murder. Probably that's the new thing. But hatred, anger, this was something already that was being uh, uh, rebuked by the Lord in the Old Testament. If we do a retranslation of this, of this particular passage in Matthew, it could go something like this. The rabbis say that murder is liable to judgment. But I say that anger, its equivalent, is liable to divine judgment. And the rabbis say that abusive language such as raka is punishable by the local court. I'm using the, the Greek word here. But I say that abusive language such as moros, its equivalent, is punishable by the fire of Gehenna or the lake of fire. Now, anger here, by the way, comes from the Greek word orgitso. And it is defined as a brooding, simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. Let me say it once again. What it means is it is a brooding, simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. In other words, yes, we do get angry. 
But the question is, do you allow it to settle in your heart? The moment you are angry, the moment you sin against God by getting angry, what do you need to do? You need to confess it to the Lord. You need to repent before the Lord. And the moment you confess and repent, you are not to allow bitterness to fester or linger on in your heart. Because that is what this Greek word means. The Greek word means that you're nurturing that anger. You're fertilizing it. You're watering it. You're causing it to blossom and grow. And again, that is wrong, the Bible says. Now, whoever thought that anger is a sin that is equated to murder and not allowed to die? Again, friends, anger is like murder. And again, only the Lord can deliver you from that. Another testimony. Uh, in our family, we had a roller coaster ride when it came to our finances. There were, there were mountaintop experiences that we had. I recall a particular time when we had several cars. We had three cars at, at one time. But we also had times of valleys financially wherein we ended up in rock-bottom poverty. And that was... Uh, that was a time when my father lost his job. Actually, he didn't lose his job, but they were on strike. So he had no salary for, I think, more than two years, I think. And so it was difficult for us. So my parents, you know, had to cut uh, certain corners. They had to cut certain budgets. So I was sent to a public school. So this was when I was in grade school. I recall... We were uh, enrolled in a private school, but because of the difficulty of those times, I was shipped into a public school. And there I met a lot of mean kids. I mean, before that, I was, I was not into fights, really. But then, you know, I was struggling to preserve myself because I did not want myself to become bullied by these people. And so to make a long story short, I ended up in a lot of fights. I won a lot of those fights. <laughs> in fact, I can recall that I just lost one fight. And before I lost that fight, I beat up that person. So he, uh, he got one over me after I beat him up. And I recall particularly at that time when I would be fetched by my father, I would tell my father that I, I got into a fight. And my father, remember, was very religious, but he never asked me, why did you get into a fight? He would always ask me, who won? And of course, I was so proud, I said, I won. I won. And he would start talking about the rumbles and the fights that he got into, and, you know, he would talk about these things, and he was, he was very proud of it. And yet, he was a very religious person. And yet, as I mentioned to you, that was the kind of, of heart we had. There was anger in our heart. I was a vindictive person. You slapped me, I'd slap you back. That was the kind of person I was. And that's why, again, friends, you, you, you might be able to relate to this because probably you've, you've had the experience of being bullied or maybe you had the experience of being insulted or being harmed or being hurt. And maybe you want to fight back. Maybe you want to hurt in return. Or maybe because you, you can't hurt back in return, maybe you're just settling this, 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 uh, this anger in your heart and you're wishing ill to happen to certain people. I recall that was my brother, Jess. He said, my wish was you would all die. <laughs> that was his wish. He wished that all of us in the family would die. But you know, you look at my brother right now, he is one of the most loving, most patient, most forgiving person you can ever, you know, ever, uh, you know, be engaged with or encounter. And, you know, pray for people like that, that they don't backslide. <laughs> they can be very, my brother was a real toughie. I mean, he was even more tough than, than I was. But praise be to God, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he changed. So once again, friends, this is, what, this is what Jesus is telling us. We need deliverance. 
Even Christians at times fail to understand the gravity of the sin of anger. I recall a pastor one time, he was disturbed by a drunkard who entered the church premises and he was preaching his sermon. And as he was preaching the sermon, the, the drunkard was a loud mouth and kept on disturbing the, the service. Finally, he lost his patience. He went up to this person and he punched him. I don't know, he may have knocked out the, the, this drunkard person and he shouted, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Wrong application. A former toughie who was provoked said, Ako born again ako, pero ang kumo na ako, wala pa maborn again. Have you heard those stories? Now why does Jesus say that anger is just as bad as murder? Because anger is the emotion that leads to murder. Let me say it once again. Anger is the emotion that leads to murder. It is the root of murder. Remember this. Murder does not originate from the hands. Murder originates from here. Can I say that once again? Murder does not originate from here. Murder originates from here. It starts here. That is why you need to deal with your heart. Now, is it always wrong to be angry? You might be surprised. The Bible actually commands us to be angry. In Ephesians, Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. So is there a contradiction there? No. If you look at the context of what that means, I believe what Paul is saying is that we need to be angry with sin. We need to be angry, for example, when somebody gets raped. Don't you get angry when you hear somebody who has raped somebody? You should be angry, righteously angry. When you hear about a family, an innocent family being massacred, because, you know, they were robbed. Doesn't that cause you to be angry? When there is corruption, when there is injustice taking place, an innocent person goes to, goes to jail, and then the guilty person is set free. Don't you get angry? We get angry at corruption. We get angry at injustice. God is saying be angry, and yet the Bible says, and yet do not sin. In other words, there is a proper place for anger, but there is an improper place for it as well. And when the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, what it really says there is even righteous anger, you cannot linger long on it. You might say, well, my anger is different. My anger is righteous anger. But has your righteous anger turned into lingering bitterness? then it has become sin to you, and you need to repent of it. Now, you and I know that Jesus was a person who had righteous indignation. Remember that he turned the tables of the vendors, and he drove them out of the temple. Now, why did he do that? Well, I explained that to you because they were selling the offerings at an extremely exorbitant price. And the result of that was what? The poor people were removed from the worship of God. Now remember this, every Israelite, every Jew had to make burnt offerings and sin offerings. It was a requirement by God to serve as an atoning sacrifice for their own sins. So you take away their capacity to offer burnt offerings, to offer sin offerings, and what do you have? No atoning, no atonement for their own sins. And that is why the Lord Jesus was mad. They were depriving people of the opportunity to access God through His atoning grace, through these sacrifices. And that is why Jesus was angry. We get scandalized when we read in the Scriptures that Jesus turned the tables and drove out those people. Well, they deserved it. But then again, once again, if you're trying to justify yourself with righteous anger, is it something that lingers on? Because as far as Jesus was concerned, if you recall, Jesus was extremely patient when it came to personal affronts, right? He was slapped. He was beaten. Crown of thorns were placed upon him. He was nailed to the cross. 
He was flogged. He was, he was beaten up. He was insulted. He was spat upon. You know what Jesus could have done? He could have struck these people with lightning. Amen? I mean, he could, he could have killed them on the spot. He had the power. He is God after all. He could have killed all of these people. But he did not. And in fact, at the cross, listen well. Even with, after all the suffering and after all the torment, after all the insults, after all the pain, what does Jesus have to say at the cross? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Now, this was not a press release statement to make Jesus look good. He was already dying of, of capital punishment. That statement, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing, was a genuine prayer. And if you recall, even the centurion later on came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ when he said, finally, truly, this is the Son of God. And that's why that was not an empty prayer. It was a genuine prayer coming out of love. Now, going back to our text, Jesus uses two expressions of insulting language as expressions of anger. One Greek word is the Greek word raka, which means empty head or brainless idiot. Empty head or brainless idiot. The other Greek word is the Greek word moros, from which we get moron. It means stupid. Now, what is Jesus saying? Listen well. This is, this is so important. Insulting language was actually punished at the Qumran, I believe, among the Essenes, with periods of penance. But Jesus is saying it just doesn't deserve penance. It deserves hell. It deserves hell. The Greek word, by the way, used here is Gehenna. The origin, and I'd like to share this to you, is a ravine south of Jerusalem once associated with the pagan god Moloch and his disgusting rites prohibited by God. When Josiah abolished the practices, he defiled the valley by making it a dumping ground for filth and corpses of criminals. It, has, it had, rather, continual smoldering fires. It had continual smoldering fires. And again, this was obviously not referring to this place, but rather to the lake of fire. Can you imagine that? Didn't Jesus say every word that comes out of our mouth, every idle word that comes out of our mouth is going to be judged by God? And that's why, again, friends, if you look at what God requires, what is God requiring of people? He is requiring perfection. And that perfection you cannot find in yourself. You can only find it in Christ. That's why your only hope is to accept the perfect sacrifice of Christ to cleanse and wash you of all your sin. Now listen well. Jesus was not coming up with a set of rules of what and what not to say. Because after all, Jesus used the word fool one time or at least a few times. So the emphasis here is not on what is said but the attitude behind what is said. As I mentioned to you, Jesus himself uses the word fool, but his motive was to bring people into their spiritual senses. In the case of other people, why do they say, you fool? Well, it is because they want to assume a position of superiority by calling others a derogatory name. Now, we need to weigh our motives behind our words because they can either destroy or build up people. I recall there was this above average uh, student in Ateneo, and he was above average. He was good, but maybe his parents expected so much more from him. Maybe didn't want grades above 80. Maybe they wanted him hitting the 90s mark. And so they called him Bogo. They called him stupid. They called him idiot. And you know what? Well, he finally probably got fed up or maybe it got into his system. So he 
practically flunked many of his grades in Ateneo, and I think he was eventually expelled from the school because of bad grades. But praise be to God, he became born again, and later on became one of the top entrepreneurs in our country, and later on even became a pastor. So praise God for, for God's redeeming grace. But here's what can happen when you actually abuse people with your own language. We need to be very careful. Brethren, let us not justify ourselves and continually claim our anger is nothing but righteous anger. Let me end with one story which tells us that sometimes we're so good in justifying ourselves. In the spring of 1931, one of the most notorious criminals of that day was captured. He was known as Tugan Crowley. He had brutally murdered a great many people, including at least one policeman. It is said that when he finally was captured in his girlfriend's apartment after a gun battle, listen well, the police found a blood-spattered note on him, and it read, Listen well. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would do nobody harm. Can you believe that? After murdering so many people, he has deceived himself into thinking that he really has a kind heart. But that is how deceitful our hearts are. Even the worst of men try to exonerate themselves. Such obvious self-deceit as that of Crowley seems absurd. Yet that is exactly the attitude of the natural man himself. I may have done some bad things, but deep down inside, I'm not really that bad. Right? I think maybe some of you are saying that, yes, I've, I've been angry sometimes, and I'm not really that angry. I was just emphasizing. Amen? We can come up with all sorts of excuses. Friends, when it comes to righteousness, God is never impressed by what he sees on the outside. You know what God, what, what, is, what impresses God? It's not the outside, it's the inside. And I'd like us to really examine our hearts this morning. Can, can we just bow our heads right now and close our eyes? Let me just share to you something as you close your eyes and bow your head. My daughter is the one who does all the PowerPoints. I've never done any of the PowerPoints that you've seen on the screen. She worked on the PowerPoint presentation um, last Friday, and she ended up, she completed the PowerPoint presentation at 1 o'clock in the morning. And she said, Dad, the message of your sermon was so powerful as I was making the PowerPoint presentation, after I completed the PowerPoint, I repented of my sins. May I ask you this question? After the sermon, are you still defending yourself? And remember, this is not my word. This is God's Word. And you could honor the Word of God or you could dishonor it. You could accept it, embrace it, but you could also reject it. It's really your choice. But the point is, you cannot skirt away, you cannot escape God's piercing eyes. He sees through you. He sees your heart. 
And right now, He knows exactly what you're thinking about. He knows exactly what is in your heart. And He knows if you're trying to defend yourself. And He knows if there's still something terribly wrong in your heart. Here's what you need to do, which my daughter did after finishing the PowerPoint presentation. You need to repent. You need to confess your sins. You need to make it right with God. Otherwise, let me just say this. You can stop going here. If the Word of God doesn't change you, just stop going. If you're not serious about the Word of God, you need to stop going. Jesus himself said, if you're angry, that is enough to bring you to hell. Now, if that is not serious stuff at all, I don't know what serious stuff is. And so let's get it right with God, brothers and sisters. Whatever passion you're struggling with, whether it be lust, whether it be anger, just remember, only God is your hope. If you are already a Christian, and of course you are assured of your salvation, praise God for that, but what about sanctification? What about surrender? What about loving God? And for those of you who feel right now after the sermon, I'm not really a Christian, then turn to God. Turn to God and say, God, receive me into your kingdom. I've been faking it for so long. I'm tired of being a fake I'm tired of being a counterfeit Christian. I'm tired of being a nominal Christian. Lord, receive me into your kingdom. Forgive me of my sins. Change my heart. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. I'd like to give you time right now to do that at this moment. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Let me give you a couple of minutes to just talk to God right now. Our Heavenly Father, we, we just have to admit, Lord, that you're so holy and so transcendent. Your holiness is immeasurable. When you say in your word, be ye perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, who can attain to that? But thanks be to God. For Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for your atoning grace. For without that, who can stand in your presence? Nobody. Even that man whom you called a man after your own heart failed you committed adultery, committed murder. Even that man whom you called the meekest man on earth, Moses, even he became a victim of anger, angry pride. And because of that, he was not able to enter the land of Canaan. Even Job, whom you said, there was no fault in him. After a series of tragedies, finally, started to complain, started to question you and your justice. Be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. 
no man is, no man will ever be. And that is why we thank Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the penalty of our sins. Thank you, Lord, for taking upon your body, Lord, all of our sinfulness. Thank you for taking our lust, our, our pride, our anger. Every sin, Lord, was laid upon you. And right now, we can stand in your very presence with boldness, having great access into your throne, not because we deserve it, but because Christ made the perfect sacrifice. So, Lord, we pray that you will put our hearts in the right place this morning. Put our hearts, oh God, where it needs to be so that we could engage you, so that we could encounter you, so that we could experience your manifest presence. Let our religion not be that of the Pharisees, looking good on the outside, but dead on the inside. Let, be, let there be true life and genuineness in our hearts. So thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for the word of God. May it not return to you null and void. May it accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. Thank you also for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, once again, use it for the glory of your holy name. Lord, whatever has been achieved today, you alone deserve the highest praise. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.